1: On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with licensed marriage and family therapist Karina Yohim about coercive control, systemic abuse, child estrangement, and unwinding belief systems. Welcome to narcissist apocalypse q and a everyone with me today we will have on our show karina Yohim but before we get to our episode, let me just say here that You know, our description of a narcissist, well, what is that? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. Now, if you have not been to our website recently and want to be a guest on our Survivor Story podcast, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com and fill out the guest form top of the page. There's a button. You press that guest form button. There's all these instructions, and we will go from there. Also, at the top of that page, there's a community support button. When you press that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. Our community members are on there posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support group meetings. You know, we have people on there that are doing meditations. We have closure ceremonies. We have ad-free episodes. We have bonus episodes as well. Uh, So if you want to get extra support, please do join our community today at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, community support button. And if you want more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone. DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you're experiencing and can connect you with local resources like shelters and find ways for you to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource and that is it for today everyone that's all we have here and at the beginning part you know this was a really interesting conversation i had with karina so please uh do listen to the end enjoy it and without further ado here is my episode with karina yohim Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A. With me today, I have Karina Yohim. How are you?
0: doing great.
1: Well thank you for being here for those that don't know you you are a licensed marriage and family therapist out of Portland Oregon who specializes in narcissistic abuse coercive control and systemic abuse and you are also a sex work positive therapist you are trained in EMDR and are a mind and, and you use mindfulness modalities such as such as third wave Modalities, which is CBT and DBT, and you are an advocate for abuse survivors everywhere. People can find you at portlandtherapycenter.com, and your blog is called abuseisn'tlove.com. All of that will be in the show notes. And thank you for being here with me today. We're going to talk about coercive control and high control situations. So a big thank you. A lot of people are, everyone in in our universe here is dealing with it who's listening to this episode. So you're going to help a lot of people. And I guess we're going to start off today with what is coercive control?
0: So coercive control is a term that's been around in domestic violence academic circles for a number of years, actually, since the 80s. So a a scholar um, named Schechter actually coined the term, and then it was sort of picked up by Evan Stark, who is kind of widely known as being the person that wrote a book on it and that he coined the term. But it actually has been around a lot longer than that. And it's a process by which one person or an organization entraps, dominates, and exploits another for their own uses or their own gain. And it's a, currently it is a crime in the UK. And I think they're actually starting to create some laws around it in Australia as well. And there is a big movement in California to make it, to codify it into law. But currently in most of the United States, it is not
1: considered a crime. So when it comes to something like a crime, how does one prove that something is coercive control?
0: So that's the really difficult part. So if you look at something like financial abuse, that's kind of easy. You can kind of document that. You can see the process by which one person might take control of the finances of another. So financial abuse is an easy, easier way to prove it. Um, sometimes you can prove it with fraud. So for instance, if someone marries someone and they're coercively controlling that person, and they might've told them some things that basically defrauded them into getting married, and then they had to have an enrollment. So they might've told them some really big lies about themselves. So that's a way that it can be proven. But I think the main way it can be proven is over time. So course of control is a pattern over time. It's not one event or even a few events. It's a whole series of events that take place over time. And when I work with clients that have been in a coercive controlling relationship or have left a coercive controlling relationship, we always do a timeline of as many things as they can remember. And the pattern becomes so very clear when you view it as a whole. But when you view isolated incidents, it can be really hard to identify, especially if you don't have training in it.
1: So what are the coercive control tactics that are used against people?
0: That's a great question. So it almost always starts with love bombing, even if it isn't a romantic relationship. Love bombing, I think, is a really big umbrella. It's just about flattery and making someone feel special and making them feel loved and adored and perfect. So it almost always starts with a fast tracking of a relationship, whether it's a friendship, or it's a business relationship, or it's a romantic relationship, it starts off real fast. And the person is sort of, you know, swept off their feet, which we sort of view romantically. But in my opinion, that's a really big red flag. Being swept off your feet isn't a good thing. So love bombing is always the the tactic. And I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people and it always starts that way. It was amazing. It was wonderful. I felt so understood. I felt so loved, so cherished, so adored. So that's how people get into it. So people don't get into course of controlling relationships by someone being upfront with them and saying, Hey, I'd I'd like to control abuse and exploit you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to treat you well. We're going to do this amazing thing together. We're going to have this incredible life. So once that person is hooked, whether it's, they get married, they move in with the person they have a child, they buy a house, there's some really big commitment involved. That's usually when the person starts the control and abuse and exploitation. So things like isolating the person, so getting them away from their family and friends or job are usual things that they enjoy, micromanaging them. So, you know, being kind of all over everything they do, finding fault with the things that they do. Uh, stalking or surveilling them. So that can seem at first like, oh, this person loves me. They check in with me all day long. They always want to know what I'm doing. So to me, that's not a good thing. That's control. That's I want to know where you are and what you're doing. And that can even go as far as, you know, monitoring someone's social media, monitoring their phone, you know, following them. Degradation, insults and threats, belittling, criticism. And it's not always really... You know, when I think when we think of verbal abuse and things like that, we think of someone calling someone names and, you know, calling them a loser or a bitch or a terrible person. And it's often really more subtle than that. So it's just kind of picking at a person and letting them know that without this person, you're nothing, that you need this person in your life. So it's really inserting themselves into a power position in someone's life using all of these tactics.
1: And how would you go about telling someone to, I guess, document what is going on in the sense of, um, you know, is this something where you just kind of sit there in your journal? How do you start um, picking these things out and going about documenting them so you can figure out what is actually happening?
0: So... Sometimes a lot of my clients are either in the process of a divorce, in the middle of a divorce, and they actually do have to document some of these things, or they're in the process of figuring out if they want to leave. So I just have them start to write down and, you know, even just on their phone, somewhere the other person can't find it, about just all the little incidents that are happening every day. So whether it's an insult, whether it's uh, the person blows up at you over nothing, whether the person's ignoring you, uh, whether there's... um, some kind of sexual coercion going on. I just have them write down everything. And then we look at it. We kind of look at the whole piece of it. And we look at, you know, the trends and the patterns that are there. And it becomes really obvious really fast. But the problem with coercive control is people are, in effect, brainwashed by that person. So a lot of the signs, while I'll see them, my clients often won't. And so I feel like I'm in a position, and and you probably you are too, um, of translating what these people are actually saying and doing what it actually means versus what the person thinks it means. So I know that I have a victim of course of control in front of me when they tell me everything is their fault. You know, that's usually the biggest sign.
1: When working with people, when, um, when we're given or when I'm given emails or things like that, correspondence and these things are, are, are being said to them to really break down what all of these things actually mean. Mm. And you can really sit there and decipher if you really pay attention to it. Uh, Every little word, every placement of a word is, is put, I don't even know if it's done consciously or unconsciously (laughs) by whoever is doing it, but Just every word is placed in a specific way sometimes where you're like, this is someone who's exerting control. They're not taking responsibility for what they're doing. And they're trying to put everything on you. There's no apologies in here. Nothing like that. It's just like everything is your fault. They've done this word salad kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. if you really start... (laughs) Pointing out certain things, and you start pulling them out. You know, it's like you're reading the Da Vinci's Code or something like that, where you're trying to decipher it. And it's (laughs) in in a way for me, it's one of the most interesting things to do uh, when helping someone, because you're giving them an extra set of eyes, and you're helping them eventually see it for themselves, so they don't need you anymore. They can. You know, see it for themselves and be like, "Okay, I see it. I I understand what it mm-hmm. what it is." To me, it's it's fascinating to kind of to do. And I'm, I'm sorry for interrupting there, but it's it's the mindset of the um, perpetrator. In my it's it, it's really fascinating in 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 some ways. Of being like, do they really when they wrote this? Do they really realize that they're giving themselves away?
0: Absolutely, and. You know, I mean, there's a little bit of dark humor to it. Is you know, we kind of joke in the business that they must have a handbook <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> they all
0: have access to. Um, and actually, there is a handbook. It's called the Forty Eight Laws of Power. Um, but uh, uh, oh, <laughs> that see, aside, so, so uh, <laughs> I have
1: to read the Forty Eight Laws of Power because I, uh, when I started doing this show uh, on my Instagram, one day I took the the book um, how to win friends and influence people. And I, I did a, a, uh, I put a new title on it that said like, uh, how to manipulate, like, uh, <laughs> I forget what I put it. It's like how to manipulate people and something or other, you know, get people to do what you want to do. And that was considered the first self-help book ever in the world. And yep. it spawned, so many it's you know it's fun a lot of different things but at the same time it just a book really to say how to really how to manipulate people to get what you want it's really odd
0: yeah and that's kind of celebrated in our culture in some ways i mean that's a really popular book and i and i've read it too and it's kind of a a softer fuzzier version of the 48 laws of power like it seems a little more innocent but it's but it is also essentially lying to get what you want, it's manipulating to get what you want. It's not setting a clear, direct agenda. And I do think that's people love persuasive people. They think they have power, and we give them power. And it's true that once you kind of figure out how these things work and how predators use language, because I've never met or seen a case where the person who was in a doing in a doing the predatory behavior didn't have an excellent command of language. And wasn't so skilled at word salad or using twisting something against someone or using language in such a way that it was very skillful. But once you see those tactics, you can't unsee them. You see them everywhere. They become very transparent to you. So I think it's part of my job and your job to empower survivors to decode that language so that it doesn't have the same power over them anymore.
1: And as I say to a lot of people, you know, who are listening to the show, it's like we are in the matrix and you've been, you chose the the pill to live in the real world and now you Mm -hmm. can't go back to the other world and now you see everything for, for what it is. So when it comes to things like systemic abuse, you know, systemic abuse is big, uh, is a big word right now, you know, Mm. but systemic abuse just isn't about... Uh, Race, systemic abuse is also about uh, cults, systemic abuse is about uh, religion. So with your practice right now, I guess, what is the biggest thing you're seeing when it comes to systemic abuse? And how hard is the control of a cult or a religion uh, to escape from instead of a regular relationship?
0: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I see more. I see more people that are trying to es- escape relationships. But when you have an organization or a, pro- um, a system and institution, I do think that's harder to escape from because there's so much conditioning from so many different angles and so many different people, and you create a whole community around a person that that person then has to leave their whole community, their whole life as they know it. And even just the process of awakening to systemic oppression is, you know, it's very, very difficult because you have to push away from so many things that you know and that are comfortable for you. And that's a difficult process. And I, I think, you know, especially the people, when someone leaves a relationship, at least they may have some friends or family left that they can go to. But when someone leaves a group, a high control group, they don't have anyone. Everyone they knew was in that high control group all the people, all their whole entire community. And that's devastating.
1: So when it comes to leaving a group like that, and then also, uh, leaving a, a, a relationship or even a family, um, and, and escaping uh, coercive control, how does someone kind of break free in all of those groups? Uh, as far as the, the things that are similar when it comes to escaping a uh, course of control?
0: So I'm glad you brought up family because family is a, a group of people that can be very abusive, potentially, you know, coercive control runs in families too. And people leaving their families is also incredibly devastating. You know, a lot of my clients have to cease contact with their family members and that's a terrible thing to have to do. And sometimes it's very necessary. And that's talk about conditioning. That's lifelong conditioning. You grew up in that, in that microculture of that family. So A family can function as a cult itself because it has a belief system and it has roles and it has indoctrination. So a person leaving a coercively controlling relationship, I believe that anyone who's in that kind of relationship should consider that person or that organization dangerous to them. So while coercive control doesn't always involve physical abuse or intimidation, I think that people that do that kind of, that are willing to create that kind of psychological web of entrapment around a person are capable of violence. So I always believe they're dangerous situations and they should be treated like that. So I believe people need to, you know, kind of go uh, pretty low profile for a while, have a safety plan, um, try to disconnect in as many possible ways that they are connected to that person as possible it's very difficult and it takes sometimes takes a really long time. So sometimes I work with people for a year or two before they're actually ready to leave that organization or that person to try to help give them as much of a chance as they can going forward. I've had people move across the country, move to another country to get away from that system of control because it was so embedded in their lives in so many ways. And that was the only way they felt safe. Other things are restraining orders are something people can utilize Um Although, of course, it depends on your local law enforcement and how willing they are to enforce restraining orders. And and that's a whole other topic. Um, But you really need a system of support to help you escape from a high control situation.
1: So I'm going to go a little bit off script here. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when it comes to race relations, systemic abuse, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, you know, many of us, would be considered, even though we didn't realize it before, flying monkeys. Mm-hmm. So uh, for us, who would be flying monkeys, how do we go about unwinding mm-hmm. our uh, flying monkey status, if that makes sense?
0: I think the number one way people can do that is to stop defending these systems. Stop defending patriarchy. Stop defending white supremacy. When someone complains about it and, and tells you their story of victimization, listen to what they have to say. Ask questions. You know, don't, don't defend. Mm-hmm. I think people are so defensive about it that they don't allow people to really tell their stories. So a lot of the stories that we've been hearing, especially over the last two years with this amazing civil rights movement that's taken place in this country— is I, I feel like a lot of people tried to shut these survivors down. They're survivors. Don't shut them down. Ask them questions. Say, tell me more. I want to hear your story. Educate yourself on systems of oppression. It's not that hard. The information is out there. There's plenty of people that want to teach you this information, um, but don't mm-hmm. use people of, of color or women or LGBTQ people as your sort of um, – Uh, This one activist calls them foot soldiers of wokeness. It's not other people's jobs to educate us. It's our job to educate ourselves. There's so much information out there. It's podcasts, books, movies, so many ways you can get inside the perspective of another person.
1: So what was that term you used there? Foot soldiers of wokeness?
0: Yeah, it was, it's from an activist. I I can't recall her name right at this moment. And she's amazing. She's a PNW writer and activist. And um I'll I'll email you her the title of her book, because it'd be good to have in the show notes. But she's uh, she calls it Foot Soldiers of Wokeness, sort of asking other people to do the emotional labor of your education, of you know, your consciousness raising.
1: And when it comes to your practice and coercive control, um, you know, is it something that Uh, I mean, are you getting people in the late stages of everything who are um, ready to leave? Or are you getting people in your early stages uh, of control uh, and they don't know what's happening? And when you have someone who doesn't really know what's happening at all, where they show up in your office, how do you as a therapist kind of go about delicately, pointing things out to someone without scaring them away if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that is that is a delicate line to tread, let me tell you. And uh, you know, most of the time people who come to see me, especially because my specialty is such a niche, if they're coming to see me, I know that they have googled narcissistic abuse, you know. They they've they've already been in a process of information gathering of trying to figure out what's happening to them. So they've identified a problem. Oftentimes they are ambivalent about whether they want to leave or not. They they have really mixed feelings in both directions or they, they want to leave and they don't know how. So oftentimes I'll get people who are in that process. Sometimes I'll get people who have already left and are recovering and starting to want to date again, and they want to do it safely. And they want to recognize red flags and they don't want to fall into the same patterns And then less often, but this definitely does happen, I'll get someone who's kind of coming in for an unrelated issue. Like they'll say, I have a lot of anxiety and depression or, you know, spending too much or eating too much or drinking too much. And it turns out the stressor is the relationship that they're in that's really unhealthy. And it's very obvious to me that it's really unhealthy. It's not my job as a therapist to tell people what to do. I can't tell them what to do with their lives. I can tell them what I would do, but it doesn't help them very much because they're coming from their perspective. But if I think something's dangerous to one of my clients, I will tell them that very clearly, kindly and compassionately. But I'm, you know, I'm concerned about this behavior. This is what I would call it. I would give it a name. The word abuse I introduce very delicately because sometimes that can be people can be very resistant. And I know, you know, myself, the reason I, I got into this whole field was I was in a coercively controlling relationship with an abusive narcissist. And the first time a therapist said, this is abusive, I was pissed. I walked out. And so I've seen that happen. And I try to be really careful because I, what I really recognize is these are people who have been belittled and their sense of self-worth is so low because of their partner. And so it's my job to build them up and build up the capacity to receive that kind of information. So I'm trying not to come on too strong unless I really think they're in a Position of imminent physical harm,
1: and as far as the modalities that you use to help people, what uh, do you, I guess, in your opinion, or from what you know, mm-hmm. what is what are the modalities that work best? Uh, you know, everyone on this show has heard us at least one time, probably mention EMDR therapy. and and, and how that works. So, you know, you are someone who does EMDR. Uh, How do you kind of go about using that with your clients? And what are the other kind of modalities that uh, you Mm -hmm. find helpful?
0: So when I'm working with a survivor, I do a lot of psychoeducation up front. So I teach them terminology. I teach them terms like love bombing and gaslighting and board salad and, you know, all of these terms that we use, you know, a lot in this field. I teach them as much as I can about what's happening to them and what process they're undergoing. So I think that's a really important part. I I give them books to read. I give them resources because I want them to start an inquiry themselves so that they can kind of wrestle with this information. But things like EMDR, I, I love EMDR. It's an amazing modality. It really cuts through trauma. I use it when people are safe. Because if you use EMDR when they're still in a dangerous situation, A, it's not effective, and B, it can actually destabilize them. So when someone has left their dangerous situation and they've had a little bit of time, then we kind of go through very specific memories of abuse that they have that are still terrorizing them. And we use um emdr techniques uh, one is called bilateral stimulation which is just um using both sides of your brain i use eye movement for that some people use lights or sound or vibration um and we go through those memories one by one and we use emdr to kind of deactivate the memories so the memories are still there it just there's less hyper vigilance there's less reactiveness because trauma memories are uh, happening in real time it feels like they're happening now it, Part of what happens in trauma is it gets stored in our short-term memory rather than our long-term memory. And EMDR helps reprocess and desensitize the person to that memory so that it's not controlling them anymore.
1: Because I, I heard that, you know, if you are, even if you're not in your relationship anymore, but you are still in some sort of situation that there is trauma occurring, that it is best not to do EMDR because even though like it maybe if you're in a, you're out of your relationship, but now you're working somewhere and you're being traumatized by the person who's your boss there, then it's best not to do EMDR because in your regular life, there's trauma going on and that will, I guess, cancel out everything. So you, you should be doing it when you're in a safe place. Is it fair to say?
0: Yes. Yeah. You need to be safe. Yeah, that is fair to say. There needs to be some. So I can't, if there's really acute suicidality or acute substance abuse or something that's going on in the person's life where they're not, not very stable, I won't do M- EMDR until we achieve some stabilization because it can have this destabilizing effect. Um, but first, you really have to step out of the line of fire. If you're still getting, you know, bullets coming at you, whether they're verbal or, you know, it's a toxic relationship or a toxic work environment or, or whatever, it's really hard to heal under those conditions. The healing occurs when you get yourself to a place of safety or at least relative safety.
1: So I have a few questions from the audience. Are you ready?
0: Great. I'm ready.
1: All right. The first one, let me pop it up here. Is how do I handle or respond to the silent treatment? (laughs) Oof.
0: The silent treatment is tough. So, one of the worst ways you can punish a human being is to give them the silent treatment. So, um, isolation and silence is, I think, we're social animals, it is a terrible punishment. It seems passive, but I I find it very aggressive. And I don't think people should tolerate that. You know, it's not something, it is an abusive tactic. While someone might be withdrawn for a time and kind of have to go into themselves in order to come back and communicate, that's different. If someone's giving you the silent treatment, they're abusing you. And I think people need to view that as such. That's a form of abuse. And I would go and not try to get the person to make contact with you because that's actually going to make it a whole lot worse, but to go somewhere safe for a few days, get some caretaking, get some support, and then come back to the person when they're ready to talk and let them know that's not okay with you and and call it what it is. It's abuse. And it's terrible. I mean, I, I've been through it. A lot of my clients have been through it. It is absolutely devastating.
1: So the next question we have is how do I go about getting the trust of my child back again after my relationship with my partner is over and I think they mean in this instance that th- that the parent was doing the best they could and thought they were doing what was best for the child by staying for so long. But in reality, that wasn't the case. And it's a thing that many, most parents do. They don't, they don't see it. They, you know, they're, they're so in it. They can't see the grand scheme of things. And even after the fact, when they're all out, they're out. But at the same time, the child can have a lot of resentment for, Mm-hmm. You know, not being pulled out sooner. So, how does a, a parent go about repairing that after the fact?
0: Oh, that's a great question. And I see that a lot. So, I think what's important is to get into some age uh, developmentally appropriate family therapy and to discuss things very openly. I think it takes. I think it takes years actually to earn that trust back. And it also takes consistent behavior on the part of that parent of I'm not willing to, you know, maybe not dating for a while, maybe remaining single, maybe taking care of themselves and their child, spending a lot of dedicated time with them. And with consistent behavior over time, I believe that can be repaired with a sincere desire to approach repair in that way. And just call it that there's a, a really good example in, um, kind of media pop culture is that uh, series dirty John uh, where Deborah Newell and her daughters um, talk very openly in, in several documentaries about how they're repairing that relationship after she was with a coercively controlling psychopath who tried to kill her daughter. And it was devastating for the whole family, but they really show up, they're in therapy together. They, and they talk about that it takes time to earn that trust back. But with intention and with accountability and with some support, I believe it can be done. And it's so meaningful to that person's child or children when a parent attempts repair.
1: So here's a question that I'm sure a lot of people have during the relationship, which is, I am not a perfect person. How can I expect my partner to be? Because I was raised in a way where I was told nobody's perfect. Mm -hmm. Trying to make someone perfect. No one can be perfect. You know what I mean? The belief system Mm -hmm. of that little tiny belief has been placed inside them. And now it's a a fight against, well, no one's perfect but I'm being abused. How do you unwind a belief system, uh, something so innocent Mm -hmm. like that?
0: You know, I was so funny. I was just thinking about that the other day about how when people say, well, I'm not perfect, I'm just human. And how often that's an excuse for bad behavior. You know, Um, we use ways to justify things. We minimize, we justify and when I notice a person is doing that, I'm really curious, and I ask them a lot of questions about that. You know, what does that mean? You know, what what, what is it that you are, are you feeling ashamed about a behavior? Are you noticing it's problematic? Um, of course, nobody's perfect. And of course, we're all human. But I believe what differentiates kind, compassionate, respectful humans from disordered people is the willingness to own up to bad behavior, to investigate it, and to change it. So if those things aren't happening, that's a problem in a relationship, any kind of relationship. It's, yes, everyone makes mistakes, but it's what we do with those mistakes that, that I think defines our character or lack thereof. So perfection is something no one will ever achieve, and perfectionism itself can actually become a form of control, where a person can be very perfectionistic and impose that on other people around them. But I find that, that that's used as an excuse to justify bad behavior much
1: of the time. So the last question is a question from me and it was on our list and I thought, well, it didn't fit where it was. Let's put this in this section (laughs) over here. And so there's something called the physical episodic violence framework. And then there's Mm -hmm. something called the emotional long-term abuse framework. And I guess these are frameworks for, uh, I guess, how to deal with, uh, abuse, so can you mm-hmm. explain these different frameworks and how they are used?
0: Yes, so when you're looking at patterns over time, that is almost always in my opinion intractable. When you have a, a distinct patterns over a long period of time, you're not going to unscramble that egg. You know there's something seriously wrong there. if you have episodic episodes of you know Episodes of violence. So that does occasionally happen. And I have seen that in clients of mine or their partners, where, you know, under a great period of stress or someone drank too much, there was, they might have both hit each other or one hit the other. And if there's sincere um, attrition, there's sincere responsibility taking of that episode and the behavior changes, that's really different. And it's still terrible, but it's not a, a pattern or, you know, long-term kind of framework of abuse. It's not the same thing. And I think people that in, can engage in that behavior sometimes, so I've worked with a lot of veterans who come back from war and might be drinking too much or might occasionally lash out physically, but they don't have a pattern of abusive behavior. So to me, physical violence is always something to pay attention to and to pause and separate for a bit and kind of take stock of what's going on. But in my opinion, the most damaging behavior is coercively controlling behaviors, emotional abuse, psychological abuse over time. And every survivor I've ever talked to who has also undergone gone physical abuse said it was far worse. The psychological abuse was far worse because they felt like an explosion of violence, at least it was over quickly, but that the psychological abuse was ongoing. So there is, there are people that, you know, end up in kind of anger management groups or um, abusers groups that have had these episodes. And if they really express contrition and really make a, you know, really dedicate themselves to changing, I believe they can. But once there's a pattern of how this person relates to other people abusively, I've never seen that change. Never. I'd like to believe it can, but I've never seen it happen.
1: So for the abuser, the rate of rehabilitation is not very high. Um, So when we look at that and then we look at society and we have this giant problem and we know based on an individual basis that the rate of rehabilitation is not very high. How do you then go about rehabilitating society knowing that the success rate is very small when you're dealing with an individual? And now you are trying to do that to 300 million people. (laughs) Where do you begin
0: That's a great question. It's, it's the, the recovery rate is dismal. It's truly dismal. Um, I don't know if you've ever come across Lindy Bancroft's book mm-hmm. called Why Does He Do That, which is about, uh, about the psychology of abusers. And this is someone who has run those groups and, and, and done that kind of work with abusers. And he says, it's, it starts in the entitlement in the thinking. So that's where it all starts, where it all ends and begins, is in thinking. And when you have an attitude of entitlement, that what you are doing is somehow justified to you, it's okay, you can take this from this person, that's all right. That's almost impossible to crack. So when we're looking at entitlement, I think entitlement relates to systems of oppression. It relates to these macro... Um, ways that we address power, that we address human beings. And that is a big problem that I think we're not even close to solving. But I think what we can do is try to take take a stance of nonviolence in all of our relationships. I think we can't just look at people who are abused. We have to also look at the abusers and what we can do to either, if we can't rehabilitate them, how do we separate them? How do we warn people about them? How do we teach people what safe and healthy relationship behaviors are? I think we're not doing a very good job of teaching children that information. You know, I think I'm really always advocated for teaching healthy relationship behaviors and unhealthy relationship behaviors when kids are in school and giving them that education so that the way they go into the world and form relationships, they have some tools You know, some people are not safe to be in relationships. I think narcissists are not safe to be in relationships. They don't know how to relate in a way that isn't abusive. Some people, you know, if you're blind, you can't drive a car. You know, some people are just not equipped with that kind of personality or that skill set in order to do something and not be destructive and dangerous. So I think part of what we have to do is really... big awareness campaign on recognizing the red flags and the signs of abuse. Um, this poor young woman, Gabby Petito and her murder. Um, I think as I'm really hopeful that something will come out of this, that will on a mass level, raise the consciousness of what red flags really look like. Cause it's been an excellent example of coercive control that can lead to homicide. And it's just, it's just shows. So it, it's almost a, textbook case of that so I hope we can learn from the tragedies that are happening instead of just watching them like a car accident we have to learn
1: something you said in there I forget where it was kind of jogged my memory that there's some little innocent things that are done in society where they're little things and one of them to me is calling someone a tattletale and uh, you know, when you're a child, everyone says to you, don't be a tattletale. No one likes a tattletale. But at the same time, you're, you're telling that child that you don't have a voice and that if something bad happens, that you shouldn't say anything, that you should turn a blind eye to what's going on. And no matter what you think about that, it's very impactful, if, especially if it's coming from your parent And at that point, you're teaching your child right there that some people are able to get away with things and should be allowed to get away with things. And you should feel guilty for saying anything. And I mean, where's the fine line there as far as how do you teach that lesson of, you know? You know, because I understand what they mean by being a tattletale or being maybe too nosy about something that, you know, maybe none of your business, you know, to, to that kind of fine line. So, I mean, do we have to overhaul language as a whole, you know, kind of, is that kind of one of the things where we kind of begin in in that sense?
0: probably I mean don't be a tattletale is so pernicious you know I remember hearing that growing up too and it it silences you it silences your voice and yeah I mean okay don't be you know I False accusations are not okay or, yeah, getting kind of into people's business that really isn't your own. But if someone's harming you, you want to keep that dialogue open to children to come and tell you because children can be very secretive. And I I also counsel children and a lot of things they tell me they don't want to tell their parents. And a lot of times that's because there isn't they don't feel like there's an open door. So we need to tell we need standing up for ourselves and speaking our truth. It's not tattletaling. It's speaking our truth. It's it's asking for accountability. It's seeking justice. Um, we have to have that be okay. And it's not whining. and not complaining. It's, it's what we need to do to take care of ourselves. And we have to model that. So, yeah, I do think a lot of language has to change. There's a lot of myths and beliefs and little sayings like that that are deeply harmful because, especially with children, they don't understand gray very well, developing minds are really different than adult minds and that children don't understand the subtleties that adults understand. If you told an adult don't tattletale they would just say, What are you this is that's ridiculous, you know, what are you saying? But a child takes it in a very black and white way, in a very concrete way. And so that can follow someone their whole lives.
1: Yeah, and in the same way if you're a kid in high school and you know uh you are assaulted and someone says to you, um, you know, keep this to yourself. We don't want to ruin this person's life, you know? And then all of a sudden we have a, a me too, me too movement. Uh, and then I think another day was what the speaking out, which was last year. I think it was the hashtag speaking out. So, I mean, all of these things are, are part of control, and, you know, thank you for, for being here uh, with me today to share all of your knowledge. And I mean, we went into course of control. We went to a lot of different things. So thank you for going <laughs> this way with me. And uh, one last time, where can everyone find you and anything else that you want everyone to know?
0: Well, thank you so much for having me. And I could talk about this all day long. It's, it's, I'm very passionate about it and it's so needed right now. So what I would just really encourage people to do is to educate themselves and to talk to other people, tell people what, you know, tell people your experiences of survive, of surviving a victimization. It's not shameful. So I came out, you know, as an abuse survivor on my blog, um, Partly because I really wanted to help dismantle the shame that that brings to people. The shame isn't on you for being victimized. The shame is on the perpetrator for victimizing you. And if we keep it silent, and I'm not saying everyone needs to write on a blog about their abuse experience, but but that it's not shameful. And it's very common and much more common than people think. So I can be reached at uh, abuseisntlove.com and portlandtherapycenter.com. I welcome comments, emails. Um, I'm always happy to resource people. There are a lot of resources on my website of how to seek help if you're being abused. And the most important thing is to not be silent. Tell someone.
1: And are you available uh, in Oregon? Are you also available for coaching or anything like that worldwide?
0: I'm available in Oregon and California. I'm licensed in both of those states. And I also am available for coaching worldwide. Yes.
1: All right. Perfect. So thank you very much, Karina, for being here with me today. And for everyone listening from Karina and I, we hope you have a good night.